Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Leighton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive minisodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye. I remember going over to this girl's house when I was a kid and just like she had spilled over half eaten pudding cups, like snack pack cups all around her room. And was just like, what? Oh, come on. Like I'm I'm more of a dry mess. I say that I'm also a wet mess person, but like a dry mess is more tolerable. But when it's like pudding, chocolate pudding that's been sitting out. This is completely random, but uh, this was around the time where they had just come out with the the baby dolls that like piss and shit or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it felt appropriate. It's, it's like orphan mud. <laughs> yeah. It's like feed them some weird sludge and then they poop. <laughs> Why would a child want to do that? <laughs> I have never heard the distinction between dry mess and wet mess before. And I love it. I'm very <laughs> excited about this. This new mess <laughs> classification. It's just binary and it's, it's you know, it's drier. It's, I guess you have things that could be, you know, become one after a period of time, right? Mm -hmm. Wet can become dry. But you said you're not a wet mess person, Leighton. I I don't know anyone who is, and I would be terrified to meet them. Oh, I've known some wet mess people. (laughs) What? I have lived with some wet mess people, but I'm reticent to speak about it. (laughs) Yeah, but like dry mess is like piles, you know? Like a clothes pile. Like that's the thing. It's just like, I, I just bought this thing that I need, but it's underneath the pile. So instead of like going through the like emotional terror of like digging through that pile and finding out what else I forgot. I'll just like buy another thing that I need. And then that will eventually get added to the pile. So it's like, it's equally as much of a nightmare, I would say is like putting cups, but like, just like for my brain, that's like the pudding cup of my brain. (laughs) There's the episode title. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and then when you move something out of the pile and you clean it, you're like, but I knew what was in that pile. Like, now I don't know where the shit is because I hid it from myself. <sighs> I think Leighton told me this story, but how do you two know each other? What's the connection here? Uh, I mean, I think we just have a mutual friend. Yeah, Vernon. Yeah, we're both friends of the same person. And I think met and hung out at San Diego Comic-Con a few years ago. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was like so long ago that like the hush hush news was that you were show, show running she and it was like, oh, that's awesome. That was like 2016. 2017, I think, because it was right after Dream Daddy came out. Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. But I remember having a lot of fun with you and Molly. That was a fun year. Thinking about Comic-Con, I remember being a kid and being like, my bucket list thing. I want to go to San Diego Comic-Con. And now that I've been a few times, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I don't think I need to go again. <laughs> I always dread it so much, but I always do end up having a good time. So I was like a little bummed that it got canceled this year. But I mean, not yeah, you know, not super bummed. It's fine. It'll, it'll, it'll be back one day. 
Noel, did you ever go as a fan and not as a, you know, industry or whatever the right word is type person? Sort of. My first year, I was an intern. I moved out to LA originally because I was interning at a comic book company out here. And so my first ever Comic-Con was like 2012. Yeah. So I was their booth intern. Uh, Technically, I was working, but also very much there as a fan. That's the last time I was there not to like promote something. I actually don't know how to go to conventions as a fan. It's like hard for me. I, I find them generally oppressive. Like as I, I think they're they're better as exhibitor and whatever it is uh, than as just an attendee because at least you I don't know I feel like you have somewhere to go often and that act of just kind of wandering around in this mass of people and I'm not generally overwhelmed by crowds although I don't like them but there's just something about it that feels I just never feel like I'm having as good a time as I should be having. Yeah. I end up taking like psychic damage and it's like, I just want to nap, please God. The booth I was interning at that first year, um, they have, it's like kind of like this big rectangular booth in the middle of the concert because they're kind of a big comics publisher. And in the middle of that, they have like all of the like giant posters of all the comic books that they're, you know, doing, they're promoting. And inside that there's like a little room. And so they put like extra stock in there, like snacks, but like, it's a perfect little like house in the middle of the San Diego, like con floor. Nice. Do you happen to be talking about a, uh, uh, Oni Press? Uh, Boom Studios, actually. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the comic companies have a similar thing, but like, I'm always like, Hey guys, can I come back there and like hide in your little house? Cause I like desperately need to get away from this like crowd of people. And I don't have anywhere to be for like another 20 minutes. And I just need to like, I need to hide my face. I need to like not be witnessed by anyone for a moment. Like sometimes you're just like, oh, please just like nobody look at me. I'm just going to go and like, you know, bum some of these like granola bars off of this comic book company and, and recharge. <laughs> yeah. There's also the like higher incidence of running into people in the industry that you know, but do not like. And it's like, oh, don't do this to me right now. Oh God. I have a thing that's like the, when you recognize someone that you like don't really know, but you, your first instinct, they're not like well-known enough. They're not like a famous actor, but like, it's like, I actually podcast hosts are a great example. Yeah. You know their face enough to be like, oh, I know you, but not well enough to be like, oh, I'm a fan of you. So you see them and you're kind of like, oh, hey friend. And they get that look of terror in their eyes because they're like, I'm about to be (laughs) accosted by a fan. And I'm like, oh my God, no, I just, I actually thought I knew you go about your business. I'm so sorry. You're eating your pretzel or whatever. I just thought you were like my friend because I didn't, you didn't fit into the, like, I know your face from TV category. It's, oh boy. Yeah. I I remember just uh, uh, endless memories of kind of circling the perimeter of Exhibition Hall. I'm in just looking for the couple friends I know that are there, but, you know, Wi-Fi and cellular are so crushed with bandwidth that you can't get any text through. Just remember doing these laps around looking for friends and then giving up. And yeah, going somewhere to hide. Yeah, like I'm I'm by the pillar. Which pillar? The pillar under the comic sign. Which comic sign? What floor are you on? <laughs> you know, the more we talk about it, the less I miss San Diego Comic Con. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, to paint the picture, it's like okay, you want it? You're very hungry. You want to go eat at a restaurant? Do you want to wait 45 minutes for an extremely overpriced meal while you're packed to the gills with like Homestuck cosplayers, shoulder to shoulder? <laughs> 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 So, Noelle, has this been, like, the last, you know, few months since COVID and everything, has this been, like, a busy 
uh, time or has it been pretty chill? Like what's been, what's your experience the last few months been? It's been bizarre because I'd say ever since I graduated from school back in 2013 and obviously while I was in school, it's like I have just been, I like I never stopped working or like took any real breaks. Like taking a break would be like, all right, I'm only going to focus on my office job for the time being instead of doing like two or three other projects outside of that. Mm-hmm. And so the COVID lockdown happened to happen at the exact moment that I wrapped production on Shira. So after like almost five years of just like the most intense production I've ever been a part of, suddenly I have nothing. And like technically I am still working on stuff. It's just, it's in that development stage where you're not, it's not like consistent work every single day. It's just like, okay, like, and then everybody's also slammed with COVID. So like, you know, like things are taking a while right now. And so suddenly it's just this like, it's, it's weirdly, I think I really needed this. It's just like, I was actually forced to take a break instead of like overloading my schedule because I felt like I had to. Mm-hmm. And like, actually just focus on like one or two projects. Like I said, I'm taking a break, but I, I still am doing stuff because I don't know how to not do that. But it's like, it's for the first time, it's just like this weird little like hermitage that I kind of needed because it's just, I've been so busy for so long. But it's been a very bizarre situation because it just was like the brakes immediately were slammed on and then I was just like well what do people do when they're just kind of hanging out I guess I'll learn how to knit I guess I'll like download the sim (laughs) a a pandemic is awful but it's also something that I feel like I would not have done without the pandemic and it's actually kind of like helped me work through a lot of stuff that I think I needed to work through and just like take a break for a little while so uh, I don't hate it. It's not. It's not the worst for me. I, I feel very lucky overall. I, I have to say, I, I feel like I'm in the same boat. You know, of course, I hate what the situation we're in is. You know, it's just awful. But the actual experience, my personal experience of being at home all the time with. So I have. A, I live with two people and a dog. Uh, I have a, a wife and a, and a six year old daughter. And being with them all the time has actually been pretty great. <laughs> and I've been able to, I, I kind of had to say, I just finished production on, uh, on an album right before everything hit. Oh and it's been this like, uh, so now, na- now we're in like, we're actually j- literally today, we're like going, you know, wild, just trying to make sure to get the thing printed in time for the fall. Uh, but I've been able to do a bunch of new projects and try out different stuff. And, you know, it, it's been, it's been kind of fun uh, in, in a way I didn't expect it to be. And in a way that I feel like I wouldn't have let myself be in just, you know, normal pre COVID situations. Yeah, for sure. What the fuck is this like for you guys? <laughs> I can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's just been like a consistent six month long mental breakdown. <laughs> I'm valid. I'm valid. So we were just talking about like the, the constant disarray and nightmarish disorganization in which I live my life. And like, it's only recently, and I feel like a lot of people are actually starting to talk about this and like discuss it and be like, wait a second. Like, they, like I've seen a lot of people talk about their experiences with ADHD. And for the first time in my life, I've actually stopped, uh, slowed down enough to be like, hey, I'm having all these like, like mental crises all the time. Is that because of something? Is that something I could actually like Mm. explore and like sort out somehow? And so it's like, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like you remove yourself from all of the constant 
um, like kind of input that you've been getting in the, in the old life, in the old world. And then suddenly it's just like, it's just me. And I, I am having a meltdown, but it's very self-contained. And like, I think I'm learning something about myself from that meltdown. That's the way I'm, I mean, I'm like trying to be positive about my meltdowns. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this whole, this whole conversation feels like trying to find that silver lining of this deep, dark hurricane storm cloud. Yeah. But Leighton, just to say it, of course your experience is valid, right? Like, I mean, there are tons of people, yeah, probably sure. most, if I had to guess, most people are reacting like you are rather than like Noel and I are, I would guess. I, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, like I am super functional. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you and I started this, not during COVID, but right before. And doing this podcast together has been a hugely positive and fun experience that you have been crushing, by the way. Thank you. Well, so are you. During this whole situation. I have objectively, rationally done and accomplished very much during this time, but internally I refuse to accept any of those accomplishments because I always feel like I need to be doing more. And also, despite being a very high-functioning depressed person, I feel like a non-functioning depressed person because I am not... I guess that's the thing about like bipolar too, right? Is like you you get your like two weeks a year where you're a superhero and then the rest of it you are just like i am i am a slug yeah. uh, and so when you 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 like trick yourself into thinking that the hypomania is like how you should be and not a severe chemical imbalance yeah it's like oh right. boy i'm finally cured this is great this will continue forever <laughs> oh. is this how people feel all the time <laughs> Yeah, it's that illusion of being neurotypical where it's like, you are very ill, Leighton. <laughs> Please don't go to sleep. Please sleep. <laughs> anyway, there's some some mental health realness for you folks today. Should we do an early introduction on this episode? Let's do it. Yeah, why not? Everybody, this is Leighton. Oh, well, wait. We never say what the actual name of the podcast is or what it is. I feel like we should oh, sure. start doing that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Late in Night with Brian Wecht, a podcast for the Terminally Online, whatever the fuck that means. I'm Leighton. Uh, the other voice is Brian. Hey. And mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, this is Noel Stevenson. I make cartoons and also comics and other things as well. Yay. Cool. Well, Noel, thank you for, for being here. It's awesome to, uh, to have you on. Yeah, of course. Always great to have uh, a distraction in these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to talk to people. Been looking for like Discord servers to join. I really enjoy the late night Discord. I'm part of like a game development one, but I just like need to talk to more people. I'm not sure if these exist, but I would love to find like a VHS collecting Discord. <laughs> I just need to talk to some other freaks. <laughs> that has to exist, right? VHS collecting. Discord. Discord server for VHS. Yep, it's true. It exists. See, I'm <laughs> in the in the opposite boat where uh because I have a being that lives with me that just wants to jump on my face most of the time. Uh right. I, I am definitely in the please everybody leave me alone. I've been trapped in a house with you for six <laughs> months now. Like just <laughs> let me be in a room by myself for a while. And it's the you know, I miss the friends I'm not seeing for sure, but yeah, uh, I am definitely not feeling the I wish I had more humans around me uh, thing. Sure. I think for me, at least it's like I want to talk to new 
people, but, and I, I talk to my existing friends a lot. And then there's just sort of the endless message debt that I'm in to family. And then like, you know, random people slash acquaintances on various social media where it's just like, I'm sorry, responding to a message is an amount of social and emotional energy I truly cannot handle right now. Yeah, I'm like both of those things at once. I'm like, it's definitely tying into my extreme, like hermity instincts that are like my main, my main force in my body. But usually I'm like, you know, in order to not be depressed, you have to go out, you have to see your friends. And now that that's not an option, I'm just like in, in hardcore nesting mode. But it always does make me feel better to talk to people who, who'd have thought sometimes community and hanging out is good for your good for your brain yeah my my dog uh she has a thing like I have to put a harness on her when we walk and every time it's time to go for a walk I'm like maybe it's time to go for a walk and then she gets all scared looking and I put the harness on her and she looks at me like she is about to go against the firing squad then I put the leash on her and the moment the door is open, she's super excited. And for some reason, she doesn't understand that if she's going through the ordeal of having the harness on her body, it means we're going for a walk. (laughs) And like, she hates it. She's dreading it. Moment we're outside, it's fine. So I try to think about me doing social stuff like that of like, I'm dreading it. I don't want to do it. And then the moment I do it, I'm like, oh, this is good. This is nice. Why did I not want to do this? Well, when like my wife, Molly, whenever either of us is having a hard time, like a really good way to deal with it is being like, do you want to just go for a drive? Like we just drive around, stop, look at nature. And every time I'm having a hard time and Molly suggests that, I'm just like, like it didn't occur to me that outside still existed. Like it's actually like, it's like jarring. I'm like, what, what do you mean a drive? What do you mean outside? I don't know. (laughs) I can't, I don't think I can do that. Can I? Like, and then it's like, it, it always, I mean, I, I'm the exact same as your dog, I think, where I'm just like, the discomfort <laughs> of leaving this safe place is like so terrifying. And then I'm outside, I'm like, oh, I literally just did need some fresh air and different things to look at. I went to the beach for the first time a couple of weeks ago after, you know, not having been for, I don't know, a year last summer or something, maybe not quite a year, nine months. And I, you know, I, I got out of the, the car again with my daughter and she li- literally just started dancing, just like <sighs> boogieing down in the parking lot because it was so nice to just be outside by the water. It was such a great feeling. Also, it's, you know, you get to watch a little kid just experience joy, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, j- just going to a nature place and looking around and being like, yeah, this is still here. Felt felt good. Noelle, you mentioned that you got into knitting and The Sims, I guess. What have you uh, kind of picked up during this time and what have you been doing with it? Occasionally we'll have projects that are like really fun. Like we just redid our guest room, which was really fun. So we like wallpapered it and painted it and everything. Um, we went camping in uh, in Zion National Park um, a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's the best. We have been trying to go out and like, you know, camp and see nature whenever we can. But a lot of it is just like all like, I mean, I haven't touched The Sims in months either. I mean, it's only so long it can hold your attention. Yeah, you, you play obsessively for like a week and then you just don't touch it for six months. Yeah. The Sims are also stuck in their house. And I'm like, I don't, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the worst part is when she goes and like sits down at the computer in The Sims, and she's playing the computer, and I'm like, I this is this is not what I wanted. This is not the like the level of that I needed right now. And then like gets up and eats rotten popcorn and is somehow upset, even though there's green 
grossness coming off of it. And it's like, what's wrong? Why are you still eating it? <laughs> was knitting like completely new to you or was it something you had done before and just kind of never really gotten that into? I don't think I've ever really knitted before. My, my grandmother was a knitter, but she, she taught me to crochet um, as a kid which I also didn't really like stick with. Um, so I kind of taught myself to do both those things. It's actually like one thing that I, I, I do really like doing is watching like knitting tutorials on YouTube. And I never understood mm. um, SMR before. Like I was like, it's creepy. I don't like it when these people like talk in my ear like that. It freaks me out. But I think <laughs> watching knitting instructors like, like narrate the stitches that they're doing, like that makes me understand ASMR. And I'm like, it's just mm. very you're hearing like the clicking of the needles and it's like you're just hanging out you're learning a new skill so I, I do really like doing that and, it, and it's very rewarding to like learn new things and then like you know as someone who like doesn't have a lot of hobbies because I'm so focused on my work all the time like all of my hobbies have turned into work at some point it's really nice to be able to create something and feel the like surge of like you know dopamine from from creating something where previously there was nothing without it being tied to my job or my career in any way. Uh, and as I'm talking about it, I'm like, man, I really miss knitting. I gotta, do, I gotta go and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially difficult with like visual art where like for a long time that feels like the relaxing thing. And then the moment it becomes work, it becomes like, as artists who's like really hard on themselves, it just becomes the like, oh my God, I'm not good enough to support the thing that I do for money. This is no longer relaxing. This is just stressful. Yeah. Like having just like a pure hobby hobby that you can't like immediately monetize or spin into yes. work shit is like a very valuable thing. Like there's a certain freedom to being really, really, really bad at something. <laughs> I had this weird reverse thing, right? So Noel, my my path uh was i used to be a physics professor and then my comedy band got popular and then i switched to doing that full time uh so i went from and i have an undergraduate degree in math and music so i went from okay you know like music as a you know as a, in college whatever to professional scientist music as a hobby that now to music as a full-time occupation and what I literally in the last couple of months, I've gotten back into math as a hobby. Oh. And I've never had. Yeah, right. What does math as a hobby look like? Are you just doing equations for fun? Yeah, pretty much. It's like it's not, I'm not doing research. So and some there are some people who like casually do, you know, research. I, I don't have the focus to do that. That's it's really hard because research is hard. But I'll just be like, hey, I, I always wanted to understand this thing. And, and it's usually solved problems, like it's stuff that's known. So I'm not really discovering anything new. I'm just kind of learning a topic that I never really understood or, or something that I understood back in college and I feel like I forgot since. So I'll just grab a piece of paper and start calculating some stuff and maybe I'll fuck it up, uh, which <laughs> I do all the time. Not maybe, I do fuck it up all the time. And the amazing thing, of course, about not just math and science, but literally everything interesting is the moment you go slightly below surface level, it's like this explosion of subtlety. And, you know, especially with, uh, you know, kind of all the math you learned in high school and college, if you dig just a teeny little, little tiny, tiny bit deeper, there's this entire universe 
underneath the surface. And so what I've been doing a little bit is, you know, kind of walking down various paths in these various universes, some of which I had known before, some of which I, I didn't. And actually, that's how a lot of, when I was a mathematician, uh, physicist, theoretical physicist, mathematician, whatever, that's how a lot of research starts, is you're like, hey, that's weird. Let me think about that. Calculate, calculate, calculate. Oh my God, now I have a paper. It's fun to just kind of be back in that mode of recreational calculation. Man. Again, can't relate. But I, I think it's like any creative thing. To me, now having lived professionally on both sides of this art science divide, if you want to call it, it's, you know, it's a different language, but it's the same skill set in a way, which is just curiosity and focus. And once you start going into something that you, you know, maybe the end product is different. Of course, with science, like shit is right or wrong objectively, you know, especially in math, but the main skill for any artistic or scientific person is just like bottomless curiosity and the ability to sit down and just fucking do something for a little bit until you move farther down the path than you initially were. My brother is a, a nuclear physicist and we actually have a lot in common oh, nice. despite having literally like opposite brain tracks. But it's always interesting every time we hang out and I, like I talk about my job and he talks about his and it's like, it's weird that we, I feel like kind of, we have no idea, I think the ins and outs of each other's careers, but like it also makes, of course, yeah. at the end of the day, most jobs are, are kind of the same or they, or they kind of like work in the same way. So I, I feel like it's always like we, we just strangely understand each other. There is like a very technical side to making cartoons and a, and a more creative side to being a professional nuclear physicist. So sure. But at the end of the day, I still have no idea what goes into that job. <laughs> so aside from like doom scrolling on Twitter, I am assuming, have there ever been any other like internet haunts that you've been uh, frequenting? All right. So like a weird one recently, I've always been a fan of, you know, like you make like a like little dolls or icons on the internet of like those little, you know, you can dress up your person, give them different color hair. Make yeah. Like a, a pick crew. Yeah. So I've been trying not to go on Twitter as much because it gets you stuck in loops very easily. So when I'm working and I want to take a break, I try to go on Picker instead and like make a little person. And it's become this weird obsession. Like I think I've made hundreds of them in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I don't know. It's weirdly positive at the same time because the other part of lockdown that I've actually really enjoyed is I've been kind of exploring my gender presentation and my gender and like what that means for me and how I want to be seen and how I want to present. And, um, and it's really fun to kind of be doing that completely away from, you know, the people who normally I would be like, I'd be seeing them every day. Like I would want to have a certain kind of first impression with them. None of that matters anymore. So it's just like me figuring out who I want to be when this is all over or who I want to be now. And so I've been making just tons of these like pickers and being like, what kind of clothes do I want to wear? What kind of hair do I want to have on the other side? And it's been like, it has been a very odd obsession, I think. I mean, it's pretty meditative, but it's also very time consuming in a not particularly productive way. But it's honestly been really fun. Yeah. So that's been me trying to stay off of Twitter and trying to learn something about myself at the same time. Yeah, that's a super great substitute. I, I would say just for for the benefit of our listeners and myself, who I have no idea what Pit Cruise is. Like, can I think I get the point, but is it just you make kind of an avatar and that's it? Or 
Is there something else to it? Yeah, that is about it. It's exactly the same concept as the like, you know, doll divine websites of the early 2000s. Yeah, dolls with a Z. A lot of really cool illustrators can go and like make them in their own style. So you can kind of see what either yourself or your your OC or any other character would look like in that artist style, which is pretty cool. There is like mm. a little bit of like puzzle solving to it that I like where I'm like, they don't really have my hair color or my hairstyle. How can I kind of like, you know, hack it together from what's there? You're sort of seeing it translated into all these different artist styles, which I think is is really cool. Yeah. And I think what you're saying about the like gender presentation stuff speaks to just like how affirming like a diverse character creator can be, whether it is on a website like this or in a game. Like it is such an important outlet that I feel like is very undervalued very frequently just because it does allow this sort of like safe freedom in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that's just like, I don't know how often in life do you really get these moments to just kind of spend time test driving different aspects of your personality that you've never really had time to express before and figure out just like, you know, what you want that to look like. So I think that's been, I think one of the more like, I mean, the picker thing itself can just be very time wasty. It's not always enlightening in any way. I'm just like, cool. I just made like 800 anime boys. (laughs) (laughs) But you're allowed to waste time. Like it's so hard to get that into my thick skull of like, you are allowed to and supposed to waste time, you fool. You can't spend every single second being quote-unquote productive or you're going to burn out and be miserable. Nope. Totally. And a lot of it is like, I'm supposed to be writing, but you can't just sit down and write from like 10 in the morning to like 7 at night. Like, you have to take breaks. That's Twitter for me. And so to be like, let's not go on Twitter. Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was uh, listen to this. I, I like have not listened to any podcast during quarantine just because I need like a visual with it right now. Like I need to be totally distracted. But uh, I listened to this podcast, Script Notes, which is hosted by John August and Craig Mazin. It's like a mm-hmm. film industry uh, screenwriting podcast that is pretty good, even though both of them are very obnoxious. It's like very valuable, actionable writing advice in a lot of ways that writing advice shit usually isn't. But uh, they were talking about how if you're sitting there and you're trying to write instead of like, if you're really not getting anywhere, you will get further later if you're just like, okay, I'm going to take an hour away from this and I'm going to come back. Just like knowing when you're forcing it, but also balancing that with like having the discipline to keep going. That was really helpful because it's like, oh, I don't have to like stare at the screen and get completely demoralized if I can just like go recharge and come back at it. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like right now these things are like a valuable currency where I'm like, okay, no writing is getting done right now. I can tell I'm not in the right brain space. What can I do to like fill that time and like kind of have it in the back of my head? And so there's been certain things that I've always been pretty bad about doing consistently because I was always so distracted by work. And some of them are just really practical, like my tiny little win for quarantine. So I've gotten really good at doing the dishes, which I was always terrible at my entire life. Nice. And I'm like, you know, there's probably dishes that need doing. I'll go and I'll just do them all. And while I'm doing that, you know, I'll think over the story problem that's really stumping me. Um, And then another thing is just like, I got this, it's just like a very little exercise bench. It's for like doing like uh, kind of crunches and stuff. And I'll just go over there and just knock out a few crunches and just like bringing some more stimulation into your brain um, other than just the blank screen in front of you or Twitter, which is like the worst way to like, you know, work on a story problem. Um, anything that just kind of gets moving, gets something else in front of you, 
it tends to unlock things that are just like, you know, not going anywhere. Uh, yeah, the best ideas for me come not when I'm like really trying to force it. It's always like I'm on a walk or in the shower and I'm like, yep. oh, fuck, that's what I do. Like you you have to prepare yourself. You get all the pieces in your brain so that like when the moment is right, it will <laughs> hand you the thing that you've been trying to chug on. You just have to kind of like wait and keep integrating new information and trying things out. And then eventually the brain hands you the dank nug of an idea. <laughs> See, it's interesting because for me, that is absolutely not how music typically works very occasionally, but I need to be sitting down working, you know, or, or playing or whatever to, 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 to really have that idea happen and be actualized. It's very rare for me, uh, maybe once every several months to have something that like clicks into place music wise when I'm doing something else. I can have a German idea all the time, but to like, be working through a tune and not understanding what the right melody or chord structure or whatever it is that comes next. Very, very rare for that to happen when I'm not actually working. Well, that makes sense because you're using like an instrument or whatever else to kind of formulate that. Right. And not just like, oh, I'm thinking about words and ideas. I mean, there are plenty of musicians, you know, there are these stories of classical composers, right, who would just sit down with staff paper and just go, you know, they're not playing through it. It's also how your brain works with music. I don't have that, you know, that gift where I can just look at a score and hear it. That is not how I, I you know, I process music. I need to be able to play through it and, and that sort of thing. It, I, so I think it depends a little. Because I, I got my start as a visual artist. I, I was trained as an illustrator. I didn't know that my career was going to end up being in writing. And it, it's hard for me all the time because like you said, art is also that way where it's like you can have an idea of what composition you want or what colors you want while you're away from your computer. But like so much of, how, of what that illustration ends up looking like is sitting there and noodling it out and like whipping it into shape and carving it. You can have ideas and you should have ideas away from actually making it. But it's not like writing, I still can't sometimes get my head around like the process of it, I guess, because so much of the sculpting of carving it out is, um, it's invisible. Like I don't mm -hmm. have the ability to look at a blank, you know, final draft document and know what it's going to look like once I've written it. It might be me writing and deleting the same paragraph and the same like bunch of dialogue, like. 20 times and, and then realize I'm starting from the wrong place and I need to rethink everything. The ability to sketch for me, it, it does not work the same way it does for visual art. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's writing is very, it's, it's very different that way. Like it, it is a little bit removed from the tools you have. Like it sometimes feels like you're trying to carve something, but it's invisible and it's also like rapidly melting, <laughs> but it's none of it is tangible. It's very strange. Yeah. I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because I typically find, at least with music stuff, it's very hard for me to get back into where I was when I was, you know, kind of in that flow state of writing something. So to, you know, start on a piece, whatever it is, you know, chords and melody, and then to pick it up later, I find increasingly challenging. And so I'm curious uh, for, I mean, both of you are writers and visual artists. Can you pick up a, a visual art piece easier than a writing thing? Or is it just different or, or what? I think for me, at least, like with art as part of the process, I have to step away from it. Because like when you've been staring at it for too long, it just like, 
it, it all kind of turns to mush. So I usually have like a bunch of pieces going at the same time that I can just kind of skip between them if I'm getting kind of stuck on one. And then by the time that I come back, I'm like, oh, okay, here's what I need to do. With writing, it's a bit different. You know, for example, like sketching a scene or a plot out, that's a different thing. But like much in the same way that before you draw, your stuff's going to look like shit if you don't warm up by sketching first. Writing is absolutely the same way. If you just kind of try to go into it dry, it usually like does not go super great. And if you don't do a warm up, like you're probably going to have a bad time. So it, it also feels dependent on that. But being like very novice music person, I do find a very similar thing because it's so like, vibe and mood based that if you step away from it and come back it's like what was I thinking and feeling when I was doing this like I definitely had a strong feeling like you you have to be in the zone for it 100% and it's also that vibe to me anyway works both ways because you have that at least when I'm writing I have that memory of what the vibe was like in the piece you know before I fucked around with it and sometimes it's a little bit of rose-colored glasses where when you come back to it, uh, and I'm sure this happens with everything, but when you come back to it fresh, you're like, oh, no, I don't feel that at all anymore. (laughs) Like that harmonic memory, which is a real, to me, is 100% a real thing. Well, let me ask as a question, do you ever experience this thing where you kind of hear a piece of music somewhat in the distance and you can tell that you're hearing it in the wrong key? Like it, it sounds dissonant and weird And it's because your head was in a different key and it's just not quite working for you. And then once you kind of hear it more, maybe the melody was taken out a little bit. And once you hear the chordal structure behind it, you know, with the rest of the instruments or whatever, then you're like, okay, now I've oriented myself and I can tell where it's going. So I think that idea of a, of a harmonic memory, which is really setting a vibe is, is a hundred percent a real thing, at least for me in the way I create music. That's really interesting because I do that when, you know, I like to listen to music when I'm in the shower, but I don't have like a good loud speaker. So I'll listen to it on my phone and over the water, I just get that exact thing where I'm like, what song is this? I have no idea what song this is just because it completely sounds different from how I expect it to sound. Yeah, totally. So Noelle, for you, do you find it easy to pick a piece of art up versus writing or like, what's that like for you? I just think it's different. Art is not easier for me than writing. Both of them are very hard. Uh, I enjoy both of them, but they're also difficult in different ways. And the process is just different for how I approach making them. I get writer's block and I get artist block. They just look different. So I can sit down and be like, here's what I'm picturing. It's going to be this beautiful illustration. The sketch is just not coming out right. The composition in my head doesn't seem to be working like it's kind of stiff I'm just like not in the zone today like it's the the harmonic memory is off like it's just not working (laughs) um but at least it's like you have something kind of physical even if it's like you know a bunch of deleted sketches like it's like you did something with writing Mm -hmm. so much of it is like oh no I did a page but it's not quite right I think I'll just you know I need to start again or I need to start from a different place and or maybe it's not that character maybe it's this character and like at the end of the day, it's like, maybe you haven't written anything, but you found a lot of solutions that don't work. Yeah. It feels different than having a bunch of sketches that don't work that are nonetheless real sketches. With writing, it's just like, I don't know, it just feels different. Again, I don't think that either one is easier than the other. I just feel like I have a better head perhaps for knowing when a sketch is or isn't working or like a little bit more of like a muscle memory for what I'm actually doing with it. 
Like, again, it feels like you're touching and shaping something. Whereas with writing, it is, it can be so intangible before you're really in that groove. It's like, well, what am I even doing? What do these words mean? Who are these characters? What's the space they're in? It's difficult to get to that place that I need to be at. Yeah, I don't know. It's different. Yeah, for the reader or viewer or whatever else, writing is so much more interpretive just because of how inherently loaded like words and sentences and characters are in terms of like how you can take them or how the viewer feels about them. Whereas like a piece of art, obviously there is still that subjectivity and interpretation there, but it is a lot more like, as you're saying, tangible and immediate and not like, oh, I'm reading this, I'm stewing in this. People have different reading speeds and different comprehension about it. And like, there's so many more variables you're working with with writing of like, this has to operate on a plot level, a prose level, a dialogue level, a character level. Like there's so many moving pieces there that you have to keep cohesive for the thing to be good. Not that that's yeah. not the same with like art, but it, it's definitely like much thinkier. Like you can't write to a podcast, but you can do art to a podcast. Yeah. Well, and the idea of like knowing what the shape is, like I feel like you can be like, I want to write a script that's kind of you know, I want it to be dark. I want it to be, have a little bit of a horror element. I want the characters to go through this, this, and this and reach this point at the end. It's easy to know those things, but the shape is still knowing exactly what needs to be said and when, and like what the shape of the script is. It's something that I find, it always feels like you're just kind of laying track as you go. Obviously Mm -hmm. that's not actually what it is. Like there's a ton of like, you know, outlining and it is kind of sketching, you know, with words, but it does feel like you don't know the right piece until you have it and you committed to it. Whereas like with art, you sort of have a vision of what you're trying to do and what the shape of it will be. And again, that is also Mm. like not exactly how it works. You can be like, I want to do a beautiful piece that looks like this. And then it comes out totally different. That happens all the time. Yeah, But, and that's why I think stepping away helps because it's like, I have this scene. It's a conversation between two characters. They're going to get into this thing in their past that they've never addressed. And for some reason, even though in my head, I know what note I want it to hit. It's not hitting that note. It's not working. And so stepping away and like doing the dishes, and I'm like, wait a second, this character could say this at this point, And that changes the whole conversation unfolds. So I think that's where, you know, letting those characters continue talking in your head while you're doing something else. That's why I think that helps with writing. Whereas like with art, you do just kind of have to keep drawing it until it works. Yeah, like writing is you're feeling out for something in the dark that you're trying to like latch on to. And even the stuff like as you're saying, like you end up not using because I have a tendency to go like way too long and way too verbose. And like I really have to do hard cuts to make it like more economical and not just like pulling teeth to get through on the viewer or reader end. But even that stuff that you're cutting out is like so valuable to the process of like, okay, I'm feeling out this character. I can have an idea of who this character is before I begin writing this, but I'm not going to get to, and this is a cringy way of putting it, but like, I'm not going to get to know them until I start writing them because like how they are in a couple of descriptors or what you know their history is or like what beats they need to hit is very different from like that in practice as you start writing them just because they change so drastically from that first seed to like the fully developed character. Yeah, for sure. The, the unused stuff... It reminds me a a bit, I don't want to totally turn everything into this, but about math. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I just remember in doing research, just you just have these pages and pages and pages of calculations that just go nowhere. But you're just trying to get inside the head, you know, of this structure. There it's interesting, too, because you have the sense that this thing, 
objectively exists independent of your brain, right? Mm -hmm. And there are these mathematical things that are out there in the universe. This is a, you know, a centuries long philosophical debate, right? Does math exist or do people invent it? I'm not qualified to opine on that, but it, it is very interesting to me, at least with artistic stuff. I, I never have the sense with music that this thing exists independent of my brain. Like my brain is putting the stuff together, but it's not that this thing is out there in the universe somewhere and I'm just pulling it down to earth. Whereas, you know, with equations and math, you feel that all the time. And then the interesting part is also a lot of the time you're like, oh, wait, I flipped a sign that should have been a plus. And actually everything I did for the last two days is completely wrong. Like it's actual <laughs> nonsense in a very real way. I, I have a, a, a couple of friends from grad school who literally spent six years chasing down a minus sign in a famous paper. <gasps> like that was the problem their advisor gave them was here's a result. We know this result is correct. If you look at the explanation, the proof, uh, to use the lingo, there's a minus sign and it invalidates this whole thing. So just fi- oh. find that. <laughs> Cut to six years later when they were like, yeah, we couldn't figure it out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> first. Yeah. I mean, they discovered a ton of amazing shit along the way, which became very interesting. But, you know, it, it's it, that sense of here is some objective reality. Uh, Mm -hmm. that I am finding, I think is very, very interesting. And I'm sure maybe both of you, but I'm sure there are people out there who think about art, whatever it is, visual art, music, et cetera, that way that there is some kind of objective thing that they're, they're pulling in. Yeah. I think there's an element of feeling like it is somewhere locked in your brain that you're trying to discover just because like, I don't know, making art is so emotionally personal, whether you mean it to be or not. I mean, there's shit that I've done in like previous work that it's taken me years distance to look back and be like, oh, I was kind of like working some shit out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And like, sometimes you're explicitly aware that that's what you're doing. That's something that really interests me about writers and directors of just like, what are the recurring themes in their work? Like, what are they clearly really fascinated by? Like, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, there's the really great like Ari Aster and Robert Eggers, A24 podcast interview where like Ari Aster talks about how when he was a kid, the scariest thing in the world is the scene in Carrie where Piper Laurie is chasing Carrie through the house. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you watch all his short films and his movies. And you're like, oh, he is fucking obsessed with this piece of imagery. Um, And that's like super interesting to me, like what that is for people. Because I know what mine are. I'm not going to say what they are because I think you can figure them out based on my work. But, um, and additionally, because they're deeply personal, but it's like you have the same character type and theme and situation of stuff that like haunts you or interests you or, or, you know, really relevant to your life experience. And I just think that is like, one of the most interesting thing about like bodies of work by artists. I started with a, um, a new therapist not long ago, which has been another really good thing to devote my energy to in, in lockdown. And um, I was really struggling with voicing a certain aspect of my brain and my emotional state and the way that it was all rolled together and, you know, like being bipolar and how that felt. And I was struggling with how to say it. I think I've said this before. I'm not sure where, and I have to find it. And I actually went back to my first published work, my graphic novel, Nimona, um, which I made when I was in college still. The first time I really had a bad um, mental health episode and really kind of, you know, was really, really struggling. And I like 
open this final confrontation in that book and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is exactly what I was trying to say. Did I even know that's what I was saying at the time? It's obviously coming from a similar place, but like, did I know how neatly I was putting these feelings into words? And I don't (laughs) think I did. Like, obviously I like return to those themes all the time and I still think about them and I think about myself in those terms, but you know, I was just writing what felt right at the time, like the words that felt true. And I think that that's what you were talking about before, which is like, do these exist out there somewhere? I don't think they do. But once we give them a shape, that shape becomes real. Yeah. Yeah. And you can still kind of hold that shape. You can, you can work with it. You can even totally reimagine it, but like it comes from someplace that's real. And then it's given a shape for a real reason. My 19 year old self gave me this gift of like explaining why I was feeling a certain way and and why that felt a certain way and allowed me to kind of like work on it in a way I'd never been able to before. Even though it seemed like I'd maybe reached that conclusion already, I actually hadn't. It's interesting because it is just so many overlapping layers of ourselves versus our work and how they're kind of the same, but kind of different. Yep. Yeah. And and putting it into art almost creates this kind of distance, which I think is mandatory for like a lot of therapeutic and like self-improvement processes where like you have to kind of step back and look at it from sort of outside of yourself because you're just so used to being in it that like it, much like the Picru stuff and like uh, character creators of like exploring parts of yourself, like it, it gives you a space to like play in a way that feels safe to your brain like something very heavy something deeply personal trauma whatever like it it gives you a sense of control over something that feels like emotionally uncontrollable yeah anyway but with the mention of Nimona, we have a thing that we wanted to do uh brian do you (laughs) you have the the thing So, Noelle, my six-year-old daughter uh, is obsessed with Nimona. She absolutely loves it. And I told her we were talking to you today, and she had a number of questions, (laughs) which come from a, you know, that great six-year-old, like, will ask anything kind of brain. So, you can absolutely pass on any of these. Okay. Can Nimona turn into a picture frame? This is something I did think about. Can Nimona turn into inanimate objects? And I think what I decided, you know, um, that book, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble? Oh, yeah. Uh It's like an old picture book. He wishes to be a rock. He turns into a rock. But then, like, because he's a rock, he can't quite think of how to get back. I think that's how it goes. It's been a while. I think that she could turn into a picture frame, but she'd probably get stuck like that for a while because picture frames don't have brains. So she'd probably eventually be able to turn back into herself just through magic. But I think that it would like, it's not a great idea for her to turn into something that doesn't have a brain. If that, um, if that, <laughs> that, that will answer probably a bunch of the upcoming questions as well. Cause I don't quite remember them. One thing I will tell you, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm sure people of all ages uh, have read that book, but one thing that for my kid, she was five when she read it, she, was talking for weeks just about the detail that when Nimona turns into the shark in the very beginning of the book, that shark has boobs. And <laughs> that was her favorite thing for about three weeks. She'd just oh be walking God. around the house going, shark with boobies. It was <laughs> very, very exciting to her. When I first 
made those first two pages. It was uh, it was actually a class project. So I was turning it in for work in the um, illustration class I was in. And I was like drawing these pages. It was probably like five in the morning. It was so sleepy and sleep deprived. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. It was the same. I was just like, this is hilarious. I'm going to give this shark boobs. It's going to be great. And it was like this like sleep deprived, like just all alone in my little apartment in Baltimore in the middle of the night. It was the funniest thing. And to know that it's like had the life that it's had, that now this little five-year-old can, can get joy from that. It's, just the life that it's had, it, uh, it always just blows my mind. I mean, I, I visited the studio that's making the Nimona movie not long ago, and they were like showing me all this gorgeous concept art, you know, like fully painted and rendered. And, and then they show the concept art of the shark with boobs. And I'm just like, it's just one of those moments where you have like an out-of-body experience. I'm just like, how did I get from point A to point B? How am I here right <laughs> just now? It's so surreal. Yeah. Yep. Well, to say it brought joy to my daughter is about as big an understatement as you could make. <laughs> it was everything to her oh for a my while. God. <laughs> All right, uh, let me play the next one. As a shapeshifter, how many times does Nimona need to eat a day? Interesting. Look, I thought a lot about the shapeshifting physics in the book. Like, I do have, like, a system for it. I I don't know that I've ever really thought about how much she needs to eat. This kid is on another level. Um, <laughs> she, she she gets very, very specific. Uh, yeah, she really works through stuff. Brilliant. So I think Nimona gets her, her energy from shape-shifting, not from food. Like, obviously, she could turn into a whale without having to eat a whale's worth of food in that moment. So she gets it mostly from this, like, magical source. I, I think that if she chooses a form and she stays in that form for a while, she would just have to eat as much food as that thing would need. So if she turns into a whale and wants to be a whale for like a week, she would need to eat all of the food that a whale would eat or risk getting really weak and, and you know, being obviously really hungry. Because like when she shapeshifts and she turns into something, for all intents and purposes, she is that thing until she decides to change into something else. So if she's constantly shifting, I think that like the food would be a little bit less relevant because she's kind of creating it perfectly, whatever body she wants out of nothing. And presumably that body would be fully nourished. But like, I think if she stayed in that form for a while, she would just have to like, you know, eat whatever that creature or person would eat and however much they would need to stay healthy and and strong. Final answer. (laughs) The, the the amount of thought you're putting into these questions is amazing. Like I, I love the specificity. I love shapeshifters. So many questions when I'm like reading about like Tonks and Harry Potter. I'm like, what? How does this work? Yes. This mystique. Like, does she need to be naked? Does she shapeshift her clothes away? Like, what? What does that uh-huh. mean? Like, I put a lot of thought into it. It's not all in the book, but I it's in my mind. Most of it. Yeah. I haven't really thought about all of this stuff, but most of. It. Do you want to just like roll through the rest of them and then whichever ones seem appropriate to answer? I'll just play them and we can see, you know, we'll do one at a time. Which animal does Nimona like the best? Oh. I love her enunciation on that. I know. Uh, what a great voice. Yeah, Audrey's NPR voice. Yeah. yeah. I think that Nimona has a special connection to being a dragon. I think that inside she like, at least has a big part of herself that she sees as a dragon. 
not who she really is because I think she's so many things, but that one was like a little bit extra special to her. Cool. All right, next question. Does Nimona like parties? Now, that's one of my favorites. Does Nimona like parties? Parties. Huh. I think it would depend. She doesn't have like a strong social group, and I don't think she's really in a place to have a strong social group when we meet her in the book. Mm -hmm. I think she could turn into someone who enjoyed parties. She's, she's kind of a method actor. You know, if she's in a form and is really feeling that form, you know, I think she would really enjoy kind of working a room in a party if she had turned into like, you know, the princess or something, uh, someone who is notorious for loving parties. Um, I think Nimona herself, like the girl version that we meet in the book, probably would not be big on parties in the traditional sense. She'd probably be more into kind of wrecking parties, I would say. Yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> cool. Moving on. Which snack does Nimona like the most? Oh, wow. Which snack? Pizza, I would say. Pizza. Great. I love Nimona. She's so cool. Thank you for writing Nimona. I love it. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Yep. This is amazing. Thank you so much for, for playing that. Like, it's really, I didn't, I did not expect to have such a, like, uh, just such a lovely, uh, you know, I'm a little overwhelmed. You're so kind. Thank you for indulging these these <laughs> questions. You know, I know how the questions about one's work can be sometimes. <laughs> uh, so I just really, like, personally, I, I'll play your answers for her uh, <laughs> later today. And I'm sure she will lose her mind. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for being willing to just, like, listen to, to six-year-old brain go on about her favorite thing. If I can just say, like, I know, like, it's been amazing seeing, like, honestly, how young uh, some of the fans of Nimona have been because, like, it is, like, I was looking through it again. I was like, this is really gory. How, how did I get away with it? <laughs> oh, yeah. My wife and I had a conversation about, like, is this okay for our five-year-old? But, you know, ultimately we were like, yeah, it's great. So <laughs> then didn't seem to bother her. It's, like, the way, the depth that I think these kids are able to relate to these characters and understand what's going on and and just like see themselves in Nimona and in Bowser and in the story and it's like it, it never stops like because I, I when I first started making it again I was like a unstable college student who did not know what I was supposed to be doing or what I like to do or what stories I like to tell and I told it just like not knowing if anyone was going to understand it or like it or if it was just for me and you know, to see, especially these really young kids just get it, just click with it. And it, and it never stops like blowing my mind and just giving me the biggest heart feeling of all. Cause it just makes me feel like, you know, I was not alone as alone as I thought I was at that time. And that still just kind of means the world to me, even all these years later, just like knowing that that's the impact it's having. So just, you know, Tell your daughter that she's amazing and I love her. And thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th there's something just indescribably special about being able to have an impact on like somebody's childhood, especially with Shira and Nimona. Like that is such a special thing. And especially having like these strong representations of like women and queer women and like everything like that is a really magical thing. And people don't give kids enough credit for like 
what they can understand and appreciate emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And then especially with little kids, what I see all the time, because my daughter is, is that age is they take the concepts and the characters that they see and then they pretend play that for hours. So (laughs) guaranteed there were multiple, like when I say multiple, I mean like 50 play sessions where Audrey was running around the house pretending to be Nimona, Mario, all of the PJ masks, (laughs) probably the Octonauts, you know, all at the same time, they're all having a big adventure and Mario and Nimona are like arguing about something. It's, and it's amazing to see how, how even young kids can respond to these characters and then extrapolate like they, they get the characters really, really well when the characters are, are well drawn, like, like Nimona. It's just amazing to see this extrapolation and, and pretend play that creates this rich inner life in a little kid. Um, we should move on to segments. Yes. Why, why don't we, should we skip the usual theme song, rigmarole? Yes. You know my answer is yes, Brian. All right. <laughs> you know my answer is extremely yes. All right. Here's the What's Poppin' theme song. I'm not doing my thing this week. Normally, no, I'm not even going to explain it because it's not <laughs> interesting. And Yeah, you're it's right, good. Brian. All right. It's not. So here, but here's the theme song. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Noel, this is our pop culture recommendation segment. We're all going to recommend something uh-huh. we've been enjoying in pop culture recently. Uh, Leighton, what is popping? You know, sometimes you want to watch trash. Sometimes you want to watch something a little silly. Sometimes you want to watch a nearly three-hour Russian war epic that makes you feel very depressed. So uh, the other night I watched Come and See, which that's that's Come and See. Uh, that's I, I really like can't describe it in any articulate way. It's just like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Also one of the most depressing, but just like a really important and powerful movie um, about this 14-year-old kid who goes to war. Yeah, I, I really can't recommend it enough. I don't have much to say about it. It's just like I can't physically cry anymore because of my antidepressants. But by the last like final sequence in that movie, I was like chest heaving, like actually rolling a tear. Um, wow. And then I just had to go like sit and stare into the middle distance for a while because I was just so wrecked by it. But yeah, the whole thing's wow. on YouTube if anybody would like to be sad. <laughs> Noel, what's poppin'? So we just watched the, I guess, the first ever movie made over Zoom during quarantine, presumably with social distancing, which is the horror movie Host. It is like the length of a free Zoom call, exactly. And it's all thought on, you know, it's all these different people who are basically having a seance over Zoom. And we got a bunch of friends together and we all got on Zoom together and streamed it over Zoom. So we're basically watching this Zoom movie over Zoom together, which was very immersive and uh, and terrifying, honestly. And I, I expected it to be hackier than it was because, you know, it's like I'm not necessarily interested in seeing our current reality reflected back to us in fiction, but I still found it to be a very good distraction because like what's worse than our current situation than our current situation, but with an evil ghost. Um, hey. 
it. I thought it was really well done. I thought it really like was really fresh. It's like it had some scares in it that I'd never seen before. They made really good use of the medium of it being on Zoom. Like this version of a horror movie that I really like as well is Unfriended, which is shot on Skype. And that's like back in like 2012, I think, which I've always really liked as well. And I and I think this one really kind of like built on that and figured out what's scary about this kind of like digital part digital world that we're all living in right now while still making it feel really fresh and not just like depressing that we're all stuck in our houses yeah yeah and then I tried to like play like a scary prank on my friends after we finished watching it just to like you know because it seemed like the right moment and uh you know like turned out all the lights <laughs> in my house and made noises and then ran over and like slammed the laptop shut <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah, I'm a big unfriended and unfriended dark web defender. They're they're super fun. <laughs> Brian, what's popping? What's popping with me is I was scrolling through the Criterion channel uh, the other hey. night. And, yes, as one does. And a title caught my eye and I was like, what the fuck is that? I got to see this. And it's great. It's uh, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, take one. Have you seen this? No. Okay. No. Symbio Psycho Taxoplasm, take one. It is a, an experimental 1968 film by this guy, William Greaves. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. And it is a documentary inside a documentary inside a documentary. And the whole thing's fiction. It's, it takes place basically you know, in Central Park in 1968. It's notable because this guy is a black filmmaker. And I think, you know, there weren't a lot of black people in experimental film, certainly uh, at the time. I'm sure there's a whole history of this that I'm not aware of, but certainly he was one of the more notable guys. And it's just weird and compelling. You know, they're in the late 60s, so everyone's dressed like they're in the, I mean, it's a, basically a period piece. And it's one of those things where you cannot, and this is indeed the point, distinguish reality from fiction. And it's not that long. It's awesome. It's really fun. It's very confusing. And I highly recommend it. Oh, this is interesting. I, this seems dope. Apparently, it's one of Steve Buscemi's favorite movies. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah. I just learned that from Letterboxd. I don't know if that's true. but uh, wow. It's definitely an, it's an influential film. I, I'd never heard of it before seeing this thing on Criterion. And apparently, he did some... I don't know what it is, but uh, in 2005, he had a take two. I don't know if that's a different film or... You know, if it's like part of it, I have no idea what the take two is, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's not a hard watch and it's really, uh, it, it's fun and interesting. So hmm. it's one word, symbiopsychotaxoplasm, take one. Delightful. The honor of a lifetime. Like if you knew that you were Steve Buscemi's favorite movie, like you could just like rest on your laurels for a while. Yeah. You just lie down yeah. and you're like, okay, I'm good. That was the peak human experience. Let's go. Yeah, Totally. Let's roll into our final segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons. Here is what the theme song is. Peaches and lemons. Peaches and lemons. So Peaches and Lemons is a segment where we each share three things. Those are the peaches that we're grateful for, excited about, just nice things that happened, and they can be as vague or as petty or as deep and like emotional as you want them to be. Just really anything that you're excited about and feel good about. I say normally, I think we might've done this for five episodes. Normally you would do a lemon, which is just like acknowledging kind of a bummer thing that happened, but obviously world is a bummer right now. So we're just doing peaches and we will each share three peaches. Brian, would you like to start? Sure. 
First peach is that with Audrey, the aforementioned and many times aforementioned Audrey, I have been replaying old Zelda games. So she is, we played Breath of the Wild together. And that is when she asks for stories at night, that's what she wants, Zelda stories. Uh, (laughs) So we are now playing the original NES Zelda and Link to the Past, which was the Super Nintendo Zelda together. And she is very, very excited about this. The first thing she said to me, like I went to wake her up this morning and she blinks her eyes open and goes, I think when we go back to Ganon's castle and just off off to the races so that's been really fun also to see how a six-year-old reacts to you know graphics from 1985 is pretty great uh (laughs) and they they are totally capturing her attention she can tell they're not as good as breath of the wild but she loves it it's it's a lot of fun second peach is we are actually as soon as we get off the recording here today i am going to meet with our producer to begin pre-production on uh, the new Ninja Sex Party album for next year. So we have an exciting idea that I'm not ready to share yet, but uh, pre-production is starting. So that album will be out next fall. I don't know, like (laughs) who knows, but next year sometime. And today is like the first real meeting about it. So that's fun. Congrats. Thank you. And the final thing is just a small, I can't remember if I ever talked about this. I'm still, I'm so proud of it that even though I talked about it before, I'll talk about it again. I managed to adjust the temperature settings on a shower like handle. Uh, and I am not a handy person in general. And the shower has been too cold for three years. And I was terrified of touching it because I'm terrified of messing with plumbing and completely fucking it up. And it turns out it took, about three minutes and was extremely easy and i felt like the biggest badass the goddamn world because i clicked the temperature up one notch and now that shower is great delightful that's it that's a juicy peach oh yeah i did a mild home repair thing that anybody with (laughs) any level of expertise in this would have immediately recognized as below trivial you know it's 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 not even to call it home repair is to do anyone who knows anything about that a vast disservice. It's the equivalent of adjusting the thermostat. Shut up, Brian. Bask in your glory. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> and, and it worked. Noelle, yeah. Why don't you uh, go next? Okay. So I've talked about it like a little bit, I think, on here already, which is just like, um, I... Uh, I, as, as hard as the situation has been and as, you know, all consuming as the terror for the time and the place that we live is at all times. And, and, you know, this is not news to anybody. We're all going through the same thing. I I've been trying to use this time, um, to really like, I don't know if it's working on myself, but like understand myself a little bit better. And I think that it has led to some genuinely very exciting realizations of just things that I think I've been dancing around for years. I I mentioned at the beginning when we just started about, you know, my brain's tendency to kind of throw a blanket over things that it's not really ready to, to deal with yet. And, and just realizing all the things that are under that blanket when it comes to the way my brain works or, you know, the way that I express my gender, like those things that I just never 
I, I just didn't feel like I was quite ready to really delve into until suddenly like all these other external factors have been stripped away. I guess this is a pretty broad one, but I feel overall like I'm like really making progress and I'm on the path to some really exciting, transformative things that I feel like, you know, I, I'm just sort of like whatever the future looks like on the other side, I feel like I'm going to be a different person when I go out than I was when I came in, in a way that I think is very welcome and is something that I've needed to really explore for a really long time. And so that's where a lot of kind of my excitement and uh, like the fuel that's been getting me through these kind of endless days uh, that all, you know, melt into each other and and seem so just kind of endless. I just feel genuinely very excited to kind of like live a life that is more true to to who I am. And I feel like I'm making a lot of progress when it comes to that. And I'm starting to like kind of view myself in a different way, which is very exciting. That's great. And I guess that's my first one, very broad. My second one is also kind of in the same, like looking on the bright side of all of this, like I really have enjoyed being able to spend this time with my wife at home and like we're newly married. So the thrill of that has still not worn off, but I mean, newly married and like we've been married for a year, but it's something where I just like, you know, like I'm understanding myself better. And for that same reason, I feel like I'm understanding her better and she's understanding me better. And just, I feel genuinely very happy that I get to spend this time with her in this way. And like, we have this time where both of us are working, both of us are pretty busy and pretty ambitious people, but we also have this time where we can just kind of be together. And so I just feel very, very lucky for that as well. We had kind of a fun little party, I guess, this weekend. Um, Her first episode of the show she's been working on just came out and it was got a huge splash, oh, nice. huge positive reaction. So we threw a little party, like a little prom themed party and we dressed up and made cupcakes and, and, you know, it was just really, really fun. And it just, Felt like the old days for a little while, and that was really fun. And then I guess uh, my last one. So my dog is getting a little bit older. He's um, he's about 10 years old now. I've had him for almost seven years. And he's been moving a little bit more slowly. And it seemed like he was sort of like in pain. And so we took him to the vet. Mm. They managed to get him in. And I was really worried because I just, you know, most of my childhood dogs died young of heart disease and and stomach flipping and just kind of very suddenly just really went downhill and then died. And so I was sort of like bracing myself for him to have some kind of like, you know, cancer or an illness and I'd have to like say goodbye to my dog. And it just, you know, they found out that he slipped a disc in his back and that was sort of what was causing him this pain, but it's pretty easily addressed. And otherwise he's very healthy and he's in good health. So knowing that my dog is like, he's going to be fine. I have a few more years with him, hopefully. um, And it's not the worst case scenario that I was sort of bracing myself for. I'm just very, very, very happy and very grateful about that. Yeah. But I think those are, those are my peaches. They're all a little broad, but you know, I've been looking for the positive. No, that's exactly what this is for. (laughs) Yeah. Layton. My first peach is that my birthday was last week. That's extremely not the peach because I hate birthdays, uh, or my own at least. But for my birthday, uh, my dad sent me (laughs) this hard drive 
that he got from a friend that has 500 gigabytes of VHS transfers of like rare exploitation, gore, horror, like weird oh documentary, like everything. There are over like 360 movies and those are all like I was cataloging it and those are all the ones I could find on Letterboxd, but they're like way more than that. And that has just been a delight. I've already watched a bunch of things, but it's going to take me so long to get through it. And it's truly just like stuff I've been trying to find for years and can't find streaming. Can you tell us one thing you watched that you were excited about? I don't think I should say what they are. If you want to see what they are. Okay, fair enough. No, no, it's like literally just because they are too fucked up to talk about on this podcast without ruining everyone's day. (laughs) So if anybody wants to know, you can go to my Letterboxd, which is uh, all caps funeral titty. I think it's titty with a D. Hold on. Let me check. Yeah, it's titty with a D. Um, And you can see what I've watched thus far. But I'm so excited. Like uh, some of the stuff that's on it, all the traces of death, all the faces of death. That might be the most on-brand thing I've ever heard. Oh, yeah. Funeral titty. Well, it's for when, you know, your your husband dies under mysterious circumstances and you need to go to the funeral and you need to wear a gown that's tasteful, but something that shows a bit of cleavage so that you can attract a new suitor, preferably a wealthy suitor, uh, mm. who will probably be fine and not die under mysterious circumstances, just like your last three husbands. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so that's peach number one. <laughs> I have just been over the moon about that. Peach number two is... Same deal. Uh, my dad just like really sent me a, a care package of things that were really delightful. So the second peach is the rest of the stuff that was in that box, which includes, um, I've told the story on the show about uh, my dad and the the rose petals from the strangers. Well, he found another box of them that were not actually used in the movie, but really, yeah, he just had it sitting around. So he sent me that box and a couple of uh, Polaroids because he worked on the um, the new Halloween sequel, Halloween Kills. And so he found these Polaroids that we don't know when they're from, if they're new or if they're older, or like which production they were on. But it's like, and I'll post these on the Twitter and the Instagram, but it's like a Bloody Myers mask and like a knife with a ruler next to it. So they're just really, really, really cool. Cool. That's great. And I've been super, super stoked about that. My last peach is that uh, I've been getting back into Animal Crossing after several months of not playing it. And that's been really delightful. But the reason I'm doing that is because my mom's birthday is at the end of the month. And she's been wanting a, a Nintendo Switch like light, but she won't buy it for herself. So I'm going to mm. buy her one and send her Animal Crossing so I can play with her. So I'm excited about that. Nice. And those are my three peaches. Cool. Yeah. Those are great. That VHS thing is very exciting. Yeah, I'm like over the moon about it. It is seriously so fucking great. I'm going to like try to watch one thing every day. There's like a whole folder that just has like hundreds of vintage commercials from the 60s. Like it's truly um, just a kid in a candy store feeling for me. Rad. All right. So we have reached the end of this podcast. Noelle, you have been a wonderful guest and this has been a true pleasure for a a Tuesday Monday, whatever day it is, Monday morning. (laughs) Really appreciate you giving us your time here. It's, it's, uh, this has just been lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was, this was a real joy. Thank you for having me. And thank you, seriously, thank you so much for playing me those questions from your daughter. It has, you know, that's one of my peaches for this week for sure. That is, uh, seriously, like such an amazing surprise. So thank you. Oh, that's sweet. You're the best. And where can people find you online? Is there anything that you want to plug or want people to check out? So I think I'm a a ways away from being able to announce anything, but hopefully that will happen soon at some point. Um, You can find me on Twitter at gingerhazing. 
can also find me on Instagram at also at gender hazing. And yeah, I think those are all the, those are all the main places I'm online. Awesome. Nice. Well, everyone listening, take care of yourselves. Stay peachy. (laughs) Uh, We'll see you soon. This is the end of the podcast. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wett, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. Zoe kid. All right, enough. No, no, no. No, no, no. Stop, stop, stop.